It's a joy for uh, Beth and I to be here this morning. And uh, I always uh, look forward to my time in chapel here at the Masters University. My oldest daughter, Angela, sent me a text just uh, la- late last night saying that she'd be praying for me and uh, trusting that God would use His Word in the life of the student body. And she said, Dad, you know, that place is sacred ground to me. And I think that's true for both uh, Angela and uh, Beth and Laura, uh, who each enjoyed their time here at the Masters uh, University. We pastored Placerita for some seven years. But I think when Angela talks about sacred ground, she's talking about chapel and where the Word of God was preached, the praises of God were sung, where fellowship was sweet with God's people, the friendships she made on the uh, dorms and just student life in general and uh, how she's taken that out into life now as a wife and a mother and is enjoying her experience of Christ, which was enhanced and enriched by her experience at the Master's University. So I just trust you will embrace that thought that this is sacred ground. This is a special place, and if you'll give your heart and your mind to it, uh, this can be a place that will change you forever. And so it's a a joy to be here, Uh, bring greetings from our church, Johnny. Mom and Dad say hello. The young people at the church miss you. But uh, Johnny Knob was with us for several years. Uh, he's a blast. We're sorry he's gone, but he's a great expert up here, up uh, to the Masters uh, University. Well, uh, my, my congregation's praying that God will use His Word in your life this morning. In fact, one of them were tell, was telling me a story about a little boy late in the afternoon who said to his mother, Mommy, my tummy is sore. And his mom said, well, you know what, Johnny? It's late in the afternoon. It's been a while since lunchtime. And so really, here's why your tummy's sore. Your your belly is empty. And once you get your dinner here soon enough and we put something in it, you'll feel a lot better. So uh, that all takes place. After dinner, the pastor happens to drop into the family. And the little Johnny's in the room with mom and dad. And the pastor is asked how he's doing. To which he says, well, you know, I'm doing okay. I've had a bit of a headache today. My, my head hurts. To which little Johnny piped up and said, well, Pastor, Mommy would tell you that it's because your head is empty. <laughs> and once you put something in it, you'll feel a lot better. Well, well, I don't know if you've come with an empty head or an empty heart, but I'm going to try and put something in it, and I hope it's going to make you feel a lot better. Now, Harry alluded to the fact we're in Passion Week, and I'm not going to go directly to a passage related to the Passion and when, when we tend to think about the passion, we tend to think about Jesus as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, wounded for our transgressions. And that's true. But don't forget Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. And so while sorrow was something Jesus experienced, at the cross, uh, we must always consider Jesus a man of great joy. Uh, crowds flocked to hear him. Children danced around his ankles. Uh, life was enriched and enhanced by his preaching and his presence. And, and I want to talk this morning on joy. I want to preach from Philippians chapter 4. So take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 2 through 9. A message I've entitled, Choose happiness. Uh, Choose happiness. And um, in our church, we have just finished a series on Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. If you want to 
listen to them, you can go to our church website, kingdomchurch.org, a series we called Less Stress. Because this passage is about spiritual stability, verse 1. Stand firm in the Lord. It's about enjoying the peace of God that passes all understanding, verse 7. It speaks about the promise of the God of peace being with us. In in a world of stresses and strains, the Christian ought to live a life of spiritual stability, joy, and peace. We can live lives of less stress. And in this passage, there are eight principles that will help you to find God's peace and lessen the stress in your life. We're going to look at one of them in verse 4, embracing enduring joy in Christ. If you want to know what the other seven are? Well, then go to kindredchurch.org and listen to the series. But uh, let's follow along together. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 through 9, but really we're concentrating on verse 4. I implore Eudia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the God of peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But keep your finger in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. One of the pastors I sat under as an early Christian was a character. His name was Ivan Thompson. He's now with the Lord. Uh, but uh, he was brimming over with the joy and, and, and the, the, the happiness that he had found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, before he got saved, he was a drinker and a gambler. In fact, he would often say after his conversion in his sermons, when you get a pint of John 3.16, you'll never thirst again. And, and his conversion's quite a story. He, he would tell you that it begins one night after leaving a Greyhound stadium where he had lost half of his wage packet betting on the dogs. And he was walking home down a, a hill. It was a, a damp, cold, dreary Belfast night. He had his collar up. The wind was blowing. He, was, he, was, he felt like a drowned rat as the rain came down. And a kind of sobering moment happened as, as a taxi went by. And as he looked at the taxi, inside the taxi was one of the greyhound dogs looking out at him. It was one of the dogs he had bet on and lost half his wage packet on. And he said, there's something wrong with this picture. When you've got a mangy dog in a taxi going home dry, I'm going home wet. I'm going home to face the wrath of my wife because half the wages have already gone. And God does something wonderful in his life. In fact, his wife gets saved, Sylvia, who was a, a, a tiny little lady who was kind of up to about his waist. 
And she gets saved, and she keeps badgering to come to church. And one night he gives in, and he's intending to go to an evening church service with her just to keep peace in the house. Uh, but during the week, he, he notices in the TV guide that his favorite movie, Moby Dick, is on on Sunday night, the same time as church. So he's got to get out of church. And so what he does, uh, he takes the major clocks around the house while she's not looking, and he turns them all back 20 minutes so that when they arrive at church, they're 20 minutes late, the doors will be closed, and he'll have to say, you know what, we need to go home so that he can go home and watch Moby Dick. Well, he gets there 20 minutes late, sure enough. The doors are closed, the lights are on, the congregation's singing, and he's about to turn and go home with a smile on his face when a, an alert usher in the foyer of the church, looking through the glass door, sees him, opens the door, gives him no excuse, grabs him by the hand, frog marches him to the front of the church, just as the pastor's about to preach. And there that evening, in the front row of Abbott's Cross Congregational Church, Ivan Thompson gets gloriously saved. And he can't get over it. And it was dying day, he never got over it. And one thing he couldn't stand was joyless Christians. I mean, he was a character, as I said, fearless, interesting, did things that no one else would do. And when it came to joy, I'll give you two examples of what I'm talking about. He was preaching one evening in a church that wasn't his church, but he had watched this usher most of the evening stand straight, drawn face, almost handing out the brochures with a grunt. And by the time the service is done, as Ivan leaves, he goes over to this man who has watched all night, and he's, he's been annoyed by this guy's demeanor. Where's the joy? Where's the happiness? And he literally goes to the guy and says to his face, can I borrow your face for Halloween? I want to scare some of the children. <laughs> he said it, true bill. And then there's another story that when he has his own pastor, at the end of the service, this disgruntled church member comes up, and Ivan knows what he's, what, what he's going to say. He's going to complain. He's going to moan. He's going to go on a tirade against the church and the leadership. And so they're standing in the church foyer. Ivan says, you know what? Could you wait a minute? And he, he said, could you go into the, the, the adjacent room here, and I'll, I'll be innocent enough to see you. And the guy goes in, closes the door. Ivan turns to the deacon and says, you know what? In about 20 minutes, let him out. Tell him I've been called in business, and Ivan goes home. Because, you see, it was his opinion. When it comes to joyless Christians, the best thing to do with them all is put them in a locked room, lock the door, and throw away the key. Because they are a contradiction to the gospel. Because when you get a pint of John 3.16, you'll never thirst again. When you come to meet the risen Savior and embrace the love of Calvary and the eternal plan of God for your life, that's something that should put a smile on your face and a spring in your step and a song in your soul. Because you see, Christianity produces joy and happiness. We're told, aren't we, in Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. In fact, when David describes a conversion experience in Psalm 40, what does he say? The Lord took me from a horrible pit and took my feet from the merry clay, put me on a rock, established my ways, and put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it. Songs aren't just to be heard. Songs are to be seen in a life 
brimming over with God's love and the Spirit's joy. When we read about the early church in Acts chapter 2, what do we read? About the 3,000 that got saved and were added to the church, we read that they ate their food with gladness, with singleness of heart, praising God, and finding favor with the people. Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 12 says what? The Lord is my salvation and has become my song. I hope you're a joyful Christian this morning. I hope you're brimming over with happiness about the fact that uh, God has saved you in justification. He is saving you in sanctification, and He will yet save you in glorification. Uh, uh, Merle Unger, who taught at Dallas Theological Seminary for a number of years, said this about joy. Joy is as natural and spontaneous to the healthy Christian as song is to a bird, as play is to a child, and as beauty is to a rose. And so that's why we, um, we find when we come here to Philippians chapter 4, in verse 4, that Paul exhorts the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul's urging them to choose happiness. And we're going to be challenged by this this morning, so keep your Bible open and follow along. Now let's put the text in its context. When you look at verses 2 through 9, which I believe is a, a section, uh, uh, um, you know, a, a pericope here in the text, um, you might look at that and go, it's kind of a rag bag of loosely related injunctions. And to some degree, that's true. These are, these are kind of Paul's closing comments. Uh, he's kind of rattling off some things he'd like them to do. Hey, you two ladies, get your act together. Rejoice in the Lord. Engender a spirit of sweet reasonableness. Keep your eye on the sky because Jesus is at hand. Pray. Don't worry. Give thanks. Think about the right things and find yourself a mentor that you can follow what you've seen and heard and received from them so that you can stand firm in the Lord, so that you can enjoy the peace of God that passes all understanding. Someone has likened it to a parent giving last-minute instructions to a freshman son heading off to college. You know, don't forget to call home. Text us once in a while. Watch your check balance. Change your underwear. You know, on and on it goes. And Paul's kind of passing on these injunctions. But I think there's something more here. Number one, you'll find that these truths, unity, joy, peace, looking to Jesus at a second coming, thinking correctly, having a proper mindset, it's all mentioned earlier in the book. So while they are, to some degree, a rag bag of loosely related injunctions, they're actually much more than that. They are themes that he's coming back to. In fact, the theme of joy here in verse 4 is mentioned several times in the letter, chapter 1 and verse um, 4. Paul tells us that he prays about them all the time with joy. In chapter 1, and verse 18, he tells us that he, re he rejoices that the gospel is preached in Rome, even by those who are jealous of Paul. He, he hopes to rejoice in chapter 2 when he hears that they are of the mindset that marked the mind of Jesus. 
He rejoices in chapter 4 for the gift that they sent through Epaphroditus. So, as we put the text in context, this theme of joy is a bell that tolls throughout the letter. Number two, I think what you've got in all of these injunctions is a practical way of doing what Paul tells us in chapter 2, verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You want to work out your own salvation? Then work on unity. Work on joy. Work on peace. Work on sweet reasonableness. Work on an eternal perspective on life. And then finally, I think that if you and I live this out, we will get to enjoy the peace of God that passes all understanding. It will be less stress in our lives because we'll be strong in the Lord and we'll be standing fast in His grace. So let's come and look at the text itself. If you're taking notes, I like to usually outline a text or a passage. So here's what I've got for you, and then we'll work our way through it. Number one, the command. Number two, the connection. And number three, the consistency or constancy. Let's look at the command. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This comes to us with fire and force. This is an imperative in the Greek. This is a command. This is a must-do thing. Rejoice. In fact, this is um, so hot and heavy on Paul's thinking that he doubles down. He not only commands it, rejoice in the Lord, he doubles down, and I say again, rejoice. This is emphatic. This, This is a pronouncement. This isn't good advice. This isn't something you put on your wish list as a Christian. This is a gospel injunction. This is a gospel imperative. Rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. This is one way to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is another way, according to Philippians 1 verse 27, to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's why Ivan Thompson couldn't stand sorely Christians. He wanted to lock them up in rooms and throw away the key. Because this is a gospel injunction. This is the way we're meant to live. This is a way to express our commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, let's pause a moment. It's an imperative. It's a command. And when you and I think about joy, we tend to think about it as an emotion. We tend to think about it as something that's spontaneous, and we kind of bristle, don't we, at the thought here where Paul says, you must choose to be happy. You must make yourself happy. Happiness is on you. Rejoice in the Lord. That's what you have got to do. And we kind of bristle at that, because we tend to think that joy is something that just happens to us. So joy comes when certain things happen. When you watch a good movie or the hold, hold the hand of your girlfriend or boyfriend or you get money you didn't expect or you're on a beach somewhere in a nice resort. When you're in that kind of situation, happiness just happens. It's a joy. It's an experience. It's a, an emotion. But you know what? It's not something that just happens. It's something you make happen. It's a choice. It's not just caught, it's commanded. 
I like what John Sartell says about joy in an article in the Ligonier magazine. It's a little long, but bear with it because it's good. Many think that joy is like the flu. It's something you catch. It just happens. Others opine that joy is in the genes. It's an innate character trait in some people that automatically emerges from their DNA, you know? Some people are happy and some people are melancholic. There you have it. No, no, it's not that. Yet all of Scripture commands joy. Joy is the second element listed in the fruit of the Spirit. Love is the first. Is love a virus that is caught? Is love automatic? No, God commands us as Christians to love even in the most difficult situations. Husbands and wives are commanded to love each other because authentic love is not of involuntary action. Just so we are commanded to rejoice, it's a decision, a choice we make. Every day we will choose either joy or cynicism, joy or despair, joy or desolation, joy or worry, joy or complaining. And he's right. Can I say this and think about this? Largely speaking, you're as happy this morning as you have decided to be. That seems to be the inference, doesn't it? If you're commanded to rejoice, there's something on you that will produce a happiness. And if you're not enjoying that happiness, you can't blame it on your DNA, you can't blame it on your parents, you can't blame it on your back account or your circumstances or a friend that's ditched you. You're as happy as you have made your mind up to be. Because this is a command, it's an imperative. Now, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of examples of this. I'll turn for you, but if, but if you want to write it down, write down Psalm 118, verse 24. You'll know it. What does the psalmist say? This is the day the Lord has made. What does he say next? I will rejoice and be glad in it. I want you to notice the words there, I will. There's a recognition. This is the day the Lord has made. My times are in his hands. What is going to happen today has gone through his sovereign hands. He's planned it and he's purposed it. So he recognizes God's lordship over life. That's the recognition. But with the recognition, there's a resolution. I will rejoice and be glad in it. He's determining his mood. He's directing his emotions. He's recognizing that joy begins on the inside and it's determined by him, not what's going on on the outside. He mustn't allow the circumstances around him to dictate the mood within him. And look, some qualifications aside, maybe a physical or a medical issue or whatever, generally speaking, then, we're as happy as we make our minds up to be. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Let's come back to Philippians. Go to chapter 1. And in verses 12 through 18, Paul talks about how um, his imprisonment has fallen out for the furtherance of the gospel, how that some brethren are boldly preaching the gospel. Now, some of them are doing it out of self-ambition. There's a vacuum with Paul's absence, and they're filling it, and they're promoting themselves in the midst of it. But that aside, here's the background. Paul's been in prison for two years. It's his first imprisonment. He's under house arrest in Rome, Acts 28, verses 30 through 31. Um, the Jews told lies on him. He was arrested by the Romans. He'd been kicked around like a political football by two Roman governors in Palestine. He then um, appeals to Caesar, 
as a citizen, he's carted off to Rome, almost dies in a shipwreck. When he gets there, as we learn in this passage, some young bucks who are trying to climb the ecclesiastical ladder are using his imprisonment and absence to promote themselves. But I want you to notice something in verse 18. With all of that in the background, what do we read? What then? Speaking about those people that are preaching out of self-ambition, his imprisonment, all that's going on. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I notice the language again. In this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. He's speaking to himself. You can do that in the morning. Yes, I will rejoice. And then you can remind yourself reasons why you should rejoice. You know? Don't let self speak to you. You speak to self. That's what the psalmist did. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. It's not a sign of insanity to speak to yourself. It's a sign of sanity. Because when you get up in the morning, yourself will start speaking to you. And it'll usually pick up from the conversation the night before or a movie you watched or a thing that happened. It'll begin to set the mood for the day and you've got to interrupt that self and speak to self with yourself. Hold on a minute. I will rejoice. This is the day the Lord has made. I just want you to get this idea, folks, that fundamentally joy is a habit of the heart. It's a soul continuing and consciously choosing to value Jesus above everything else. It's gospel-centered living. Uh, joy is the result. Listen, this is a very important phrase. Joy is the result of a forced focus on Jesus. Where you turn your head to look to the author and the finisher of your faith. You get it off yourself. You get it off your mood. You get it off your disappointment. You get it off the thing that's bugging the life out of you. There is a forced focus on Jesus. There is a tough treasuring of the Savior. That's what joy is. One writer, actually we wouldn't agree with this theology, but Karl Barth famously wrote that joy is a defiant nevertheless. That's a good statement. That's what joy is. It's a defiant nevertheless. Though the fig tree doesn't blossom, says Habakkuk, I'll rejoice in the Lord. It's a defiant nevertheless. It's, it's not the product of temperament. It's not the outcome even of providence. It's not the child of emotion. It's a forced focus on Christ. The feelings will come. The emotions will come. Joy's not emotionless. But it's something that comes out of a mind and a heart treasuring Jesus, focusing on the gospel, focusing on what's true and real and can't be changed. Joy is the orientation of the Christian mind and heart towards Jesus. Let me illustrate this and move on. Sometime, read something of the life of George Mueller. German and Prussian by pedigree and heritage, but lived most of his life in England. And if you know anything about his life, uh, he was famous in the 1900s for um, starting orphanages and schools. He lived in the city of Bristol. Uh, during his time, he started Ashley Down Orphanage. Um, and um, across his lifetime, he took care of 10,000 orphans. Across his lifetime, he established 117 schools 
that ministered to 120,000 children. And by the way, he did that in terms of financial support by just prayer and faith. He had a philosophy where he didn't appeal for money. In fact, he is famous for saying, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. But he loved the Lord. He was busy. At times he would be exhausted. And so he worked hard at trying to keep his relationship with God fresh and joyful. And he tells us how he managed to do that and what was the secret of that. This is a statement out of his journal. Very helpful here. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. How different each day is when the soul is refreshed and made happy early. That's quite a statement, isn't it? And it's what Paul would agree. Paul would say, way to go, brother. Rejoice in the Lord. I will say this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. You need every morning as early as possible to make your soul happy in the Lord. I know we can talk to the Lord any time of the day, but the best time of the day is in the morning before the day rushes at you with all its conflicting voices and angry voices. You've got to make your soul happy in the Lord and live out of the center of that. So that's the command. Number two, the connection. The call is to rejoice, but notice where it is tethered and tied to. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. They were to to rejoice in the Lord. Their happiness would come out of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Their happiness had nothing to do with their health, their wealth, their future plans, their spouses, their children, their accomplishments, their possessions, or any creaturely comfort. Their joy was a defiant nevertheless in the face of whatever life would bring where they would focus on what's true about Jesus and what's true about them in relation to Jesus. I'm justified because of him. He's been made unto me my sanctification and wisdom. He'll never leave me or forsake me. Nothing will separate me from his love. He prays for me all the time at the right hand of God. That's where they would find their joy. And that's why when Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. That's not Pollyannish. That's not a pipe dream. That's not unrealistic. It's just unrealistic, Paul, to rejoice always. Because life doesn't stay the same. My moods don't stay the same. My physical strength rises and falls like the tide. Some nights I sleep well. Some nights I don't. Some days I have enough. Some days I don't. Some days my friends are in, some days my friends are out, and the list goes on. You can rejoice always, and Paul would say, yes, you can, if you're rejoicing in the Lord, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the connection here is that you and I need to draw upon Christ as life's greatest reality and life's greatest resource. That's why Paul says earlier in this letter, doesn't he? For me to live 
is Christ. Not money, not sex, not power, not possessions, not accomplishments, not status. For me to live is Christ. Because he's the greatest reality. You know this theology, you know, Christ is the, the creator of all things. Without him, nothing was made that was made. John 1, 3. He's not only the creator of all things, he's the controller of all things. Hebrews 1, 3. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He's sovereign and Lord. And he's not only the creator of all things and the controller of all things, he's the center of all things. Because according to Colossians 1.17, in him all things consist. Phenomenal, interesting Greek word, cohere. He's the glue that holds everything together. He's the explanation for the inexplicable unity of the atom. What holds the atom together? Scientists wonder. The theological argument is Jesus holds it together because everything consists in him. Life is his. He's the creator of it, the controller of it. He's the center of it. And if he's the center of life, then when you make him the center of life, joy will result. You may not be able to rejoice in your loss, but you can rejoice in your Lord. You may not be able to rejoice in your situation, but you can rejoice in your Savior. You may not be able to rejoice in your health. You can rejoice in your high priest. You may not be able to rejoice in your relationships, but you can rejoice in your Redeemer. You may not be able to rejoice in your suffering, but you can rejoice in your shepherd. Practically, folks, here's what we're talking about. Joy is the byproduct of abiding in Christ. Write that down and think about it. You know, our Constitution talks about how the Creator has endowed us with rights like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But don't pursue happiness as an end in itself because you'll never find it. Those who, go look, those who go looking for happiness never find it. Biblically, theologically, gospel explained, happiness is the byproduct of seeking Christ. It's abiding in Jesus. Now, let me show you this. Go over to John 15. See, when you and I put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we come into this wonderful union that's both a positional reality and a conditional pursuit. By faith alone, we come into a relationship with, with God through Christ. We're justified. We're declared righteous. We're, we've now got a standing with God, and we're, we're united to Him and reconciled to Him and accepted before Him. That's our position. That's our union in Christ. And it's described in terms of as like a wife and a husband and a branch and a vine and a body part and a, 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 a body. But it's not just a union, it's, it's something that has got to be worked out. The branch is in the vine, that's union. But the branch has got to draw from the vine the sap that gives it life and causes the leaves to bloom and color. And Jesus argues here, okay, you're united to me. 
But there's not only got to be union, there's got to be communion. This union with me is not only a positional reality, it's a conditional pursuit. You've got to pursue me now that you're united to me. As in a husband is united to his wife, that's his status in terms of marriage, but he's got to pursue her. And the branches in the vine, that's its connection, its status, but it draws life from the branch, and that's Jesus' argument. So in John 15, verses 5, we read, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Now, what does it mean to abide in Christ? Two things are talked about in our text. We'll just touch on it briefly. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. So in a nutshell, abiding in the Lord Jesus means allowing His Word to fill our minds, bend our wills, and direct our decisions. Your relationship with Jesus will be determined a great deal by your relationship to the Bible. Because here Jesus said, abide in me like the branch in the vine. And abiding in me means hearing my word, reading it, sitting under the preaching of it, not only hearing it, but doing it. So abiding in Christ is, is that. But scroll down to verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. It's another aspect of abiding in Christ, communion with Jesus. Not only hearing his word and doing it, abiding in the word, and Christ abides in us, but abiding in his love. Understanding the gospel, sitting at the foot of the cross, understanding the great scheme of redemption and what God has done in Jesus Christ for your soul and how Christ is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world and how Christ poured out his soul on the death for you and how his blood covers your sin and you revel in his love, a love that will never end. Nothing will separate you from that bond that Christ established through his death. Jesus said, you know what? If you'll abide in me by abiding in my word and abiding in my love, scroll down to verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. That's the key, folks. See, you're as happy as you have made your mind up to be. And the mind that is made up to be happy in Jesus is a mind saturated in the Word and a mind that focuses on the gospel. It's a mind like C.H. Spurgeon who said that there wasn't a 15-minute period in the day where he didn't consciously turn his mind to Jesus. That's where joy is found, rejoicing in the Lord. As we abide in Christ, his word and his love, his joy remains in us just as the sap flows from the vine into the branch, so the life and joy of Jesus flows into us. Let me illustrate this and we'll move on to our last thought. George B. Duncan pastored at the Tron Presbyterian Church in Glasgow. He was followed by Sinclair Ferguson. In one of his books, he tells a wonderful story about a lady who was vacationing, as you say here in America, we say holidaying back in Britain. And she was in Devon, England. And uh, she was uh, kind of sitting at the windowsill of her B&B, or bed and breakfast there in a beautiful part of England. And uh, she sat there one morning towards lunchtime. There was this beautiful smell. 
that began to kind of catch her attention, a fragrance. And she wondered where it came from. She couldn't understand it. In fact, as she looked out through the windows, just the streets were just flooded with people. It looked like a normal, everyday scene. She goes outside to see what's going on, and as she goes out of the house, the strong becomes even more pungent. It's beautiful. It's a perfume smell. It's a fragrant smell. And again, it's even stronger out on the street. And so she asked the, the lady who has the bed and breakfast what, what this is all about, and um, she says, oh, um, let me explain. She said, she said it's lunchtime, and, and everybody that works in the perfume factory is out for lunch. And you see, when they come out of the factory, they bring the fragrance with them. You know, they're in the factory, they're in the, in the smell of the perfume and the fragrance is all over the factory, and it's clinging to their skin, and it's worked its way into the fabric of their clothing, and when they come out, they bring the fragrance with them, and it fills the air. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? And the point that George B. Duncan's making, and I make from him, is that the life that abides in Christ, spends time with Jesus, sits at the foot of the cross, reads the Word, walks in the Spirit, will bring with it the fragrance of Jesus, which is joy and happiness. Let's move to our last thought, the constancy or the consistency. I want to focus on this little word, always, for a few moments. Rejoice, that's the command. In the Lord, that's the connection. Always, that's the consistency. You know what? Paul's Christianity was not like a bottle of soda, fizzy then flat. You know what? There was a consistency to it. His joy was unmitigated. He had a joy in Christ that was for time and eternity, for body and soul, for Sunday and Monday, for blue skies and gray skies, and for life and for death. See, what did Jesus say back in John 15, 11? My joy will remain in you and your joy will be full. That's possible, folks. You and I can live lives of unmitigated joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can rejoice in the Lord always. Now, we tend to be happy when the sun's to our face and the wind's to our back. But when we hear the doctor say cancer or when a friend betrays us or a relationship breaks up that we didn't want it to break up or whatever the life situation is, we tend to get down. We tend to lose our joy. We're not always joyful. But, but that should not be the case because none of that changes gospel reality. When I was growing up, we used to sing an old hymn that had a line in it, and it came back to me when I was studying Philippians 4, verse 4. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. And we sang it that much that it just came back out of my subconscious as I was studying, and I said, that's the truth, isn't it? All may change. My health may change. My job may change. My house circumstances may change. My relationships may change. All may change, but Jesus never. You know, Jesus doesn't change. You know that? Our God's immutable. Our Savior's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a constant. 
That's why your joy can be a constant. It can be a defiant nevertheless because Jesus never changes. And so for about five minutes here, I'm going to just bounce you through the text quickly to give you three areas of constancy. There's the constancy of Jesus' salvation. Look at verse 3, just out of interest, because he moves from verse 3 to verse 4. took me a long time to work that out. And and at the end of verse 3, he says to these two women and the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about they're the registrar of the elect. That somewhere in eternity past, God wrote down the names of those that His Son would save and the Spirit would keep and they would be brought to heaven. The book of life. And when, you know what? When your name is written in the book of life, it's written in indelible ink. It's a permanent marker. And you're saved surely. That's why Paul says in Philippians, Philippians 1.6, I'm confident that he that has begun a good work in you will perform it. My friend, you can rejoice in the Lord always because you're saved and you'll always be saved and you're headed to heaven and you're going to enjoy pleasures forevermore. What a great salvation. Don't neglect it. It's the same over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. I love this. Watch what Peter does. Something similar here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven, kept by the power of God through faith to salvation. Now look at verse 6. And in this you greatly rejoice. Do you? Do I? We should. Let's go down that list. Salvation, eternal inheritance, doesn't fade away, isn't affected by the markets. When Martin Lloyd-Jones was dying, someone approached him, a friend, and asked him how he was doing. He was housebound. He was almost an invalid by this stage. And they asked him, you know, how, how is it with you, doctor? You have traveled the world preaching to vast crowds of people. Now you're confined to this room. How are you dealing with that? Do you know what Lloyd-Jones said in answer? He just quoted the Scripture, John, Luke 10, 20, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He was rejoicing in salvation. In fact, earlier in his ministry, Lloyd-Jones had said this, don't let your happiness depend on preaching for the day will come when you can no longer preach. Find your happiness in God who will be with you to the end. You've got the constancy of Jesus' salvation. Secondly, you've got the constancy of Jesus' sovereignty. We can be joyful at all times because our times are in God's hand, Psalm 35. Or one of our favorites, Romans 8, 28. All things, bracketed, at all times, work together for good to those that love God and are called according to His promise. Are you saved? Yes. Is your name in the book of life? Yes. Then God is up to something in your life when life piles in. The worst day of your life could be the beginning of the best years of your life. 
God can work it all together. Paul tells us that. Go back to Philippians, Philippians 1, verses 12 to 18, and, and Paul talks about the fact that his imprisonment, the jealousy of brethren, the conspiracy of Jews being kicked around as a political football by the Romans. He said, you know what? I want you to know what has happened to me, verse 12. All these things have fallen out for the furtherance of the gospel. Interesting word, furtherance. It's a military term, and it speaks of a, a, a company of woodcutters in the Roman army. And they would go ahead of the legionnaires, and if they came to a dense forest or obstacles, they would cut their way through the obstacles. And Paul is saying, you know what? You won't believe this, but my imprisonment is cutting a hole uh, for the gospel. And people are being saved in Caesar's house, and brethren are becoming bold. Isn't it wonderful? God is sovereign. And so when things are working against you, you need to remember that God is for you. We have a wonderful staff member, Dave Doyle, Dallas Theological grad, been with me probably the longest at our church, and him and I have gone through some scrapes together and church fights and different things we've had to work out as leaders there at Kindred. And David will always say, if after a staff meeting, even if we've talked about a difficult situation or a conflict or a problem, all the time, this is what he'll say, Pastor, it's all good. I go, really? Doesn't sound good. It's all good. That's his phrase. He'll use it all the time. It's all good. And he's right. Theologically, he's right. It's all good. It'll all fall out for the furtherance of the gospel. It'll all work out. You can rejoice in the Lord always because of Jesus' salvation, Jesus' sovereignty, and finally, Jesus' sufficiency. In fact, after verses 2 to 9, Paul will talk about being content. He'd say, I have learned to be content regardless of the situation. Some days I'm up, some days I'm down. Some days I'm full, some days I'm empty. But I've learned to be content. Now, the Greek word for content means self-sufficiency. He's basically saying, I've learned a sufficiency. I can go to a well, draw from it, every time, and it never runs dry. In fact, Warren Wearsby does a good thing with Philippians 4. He says that that Greek word carries the idea of containment. So here, Paul could literally be saying, I have learned to be content, or I have learned that I'm contained, sufficient for the circumstance, and he gives us the answer in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me present tense verb, who keeps on pouring his strength into me. God's grace, my friends, is an open faucet. Just bring your bucket, bring your cup, bring your saucer. I don't know what you need filled, but God will fill it with his grace and his peace and his wisdom, and he'll help you get through that situation because you have a sufficiency in Christ that allows you to rejoice always. Well, we're going to sing, but before we get there, let me finish with this story. Jonathan Edwards. 1749, he decides to purge the church to some degree, and he decides that, rightly so, that only believers should come to the Lord's table. And this causes an uproar in his church. Members are upset. Some leaders rebel. And problems are fostered. 
So much so that in 1750, a church council of churches meets and recommends his dismissal. Shortly after that, the church itself meets. Many of his supporters don't go to the meeting because they know that the fix is in and the vote takes place, 230 to 29 to dismiss their pastor. And America's greatest theologian is turfed out on his ear. I wonder how he responded. Bitter? Unhappy? Well, actually, somebody tells us. Someone who witnessed the whole thing and watched his response said this, and we're done. That faithful witness, speaking of Jonathan Edwards, that faithful witness received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. It appeared that this was a man whose happiness was beyond the reach of his enemies. When I read that story one day, I marked it, and I've gone back to it many times. That's challenging because it's real, and sometimes that's not what I am, and you know that's not what you are. In the midst of bitterness and trouble and trials and losses, we don't display a happiness that's beyond the reach of the enemy. But there is a happiness. Oh, when you, when you get a pint of John 3.16, you'll never thirst again. When you come to know Jesus, whom to know is life eternal, you'll have unspeakable joy, full of glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time in the Word this morning. May it abide in us as we abide in you so that your joy might remain in us. Forgive us for being crabby, unhappy, discontent, grumbling Christians. Lord, some of us have faces that would scare children at Halloween. Some of us have attitudes that are hard and stony and joyless. We're, we're, we're a, an embarrassment to the gospel. So ch ch t tell us and challenge us to take this letter of the Philippians and tuck it away in our hearts so that your Spirit of God might produce love and peace and joy. For we ask it in Jesus' name.